The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined as usual by, uh, by my uh, colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Bill McGavern of the Coalition for Clean Air and assorted other clean air groups and environmental groups known him for years. And Bill, we wanted to ask you, um, first of all, tell you thank you for joining us. And we want to talk a little bit about Prop 30, which I kind of assumed was a was a no-brainer when it was going to go, no problem at all would get approved. But um, the governor came out against it, and I guess other things happened. Can you chat about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, it, it, Prop 30, the, the Clean Air Initiative, uh, would have saved the lives of thousands of Californians every year. It would have made a huge dent in the air pollution that is, in California, by far the worst in the entire country. And, you know, we, we face these existential crises of climate change and wildfires, catastrophic wildfires that we're seeing worse and worse in California. Uh, we, we've had so many times when we go outside and there's smoke in the air uh, and we have the continual exhaust from diesel engines that we know is bad for our health. So we really wanted to do something big to confront that. And one of the ways that we do that is by having large amounts of incentive funds so that we can switch out dirty old engines like those in, say, old diesel trucks and buses and replace them with the great new zero emission technology that really emits no pollution from the tailpipe. We've got some good regulations in California to make that happen, um, but it happens a lot quicker if you have that money. And so every year I and my colleagues work on, on the budget to try to get this incentive dollars flowing. And sometimes there's good years, like the last couple of years we had surpluses and we had unprecedented amounts of incentive dollars. That's great. But I, I've been here a long time. I know you have too. We know that budget cycles fluctuate. And, uh, you know, the, the state's fortunes go up and down when it comes to the Treasury. And so we've been in an up cycle. Now we seem to be heading into a down one again. So what we wanted to do was to have a steady, reliable source of funding for not only those clean vehicles, trucks, buses, cars, ships, trains, but also the infrastructure to allow them to operate on zero emissions and to bulk up our resources to fight wildfires, to both prevent them and control the ones that will inevitably break out. We thought that the best way to fund this was by a small increase in taxes on the very wealthiest Californians, those making over $2 million a year. I mean, I literally don't know anybody in that category. It's only... Well, John and I, rich well, journalists. So, so now I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, it's only uh, 35,000 households in the state of California. These are the people who have done so well by being in California. They benefited from the Trump tax cuts. We wanted to just take a little slice of that. So, Is that gross taxes or is that uh, net? Is that before? How would you describe that? So is that net is, income or gross? This, this is um, reported income, and it will be only once you get above $2 million, okay. right? So this would be what they, when you do your tax return, when you end up with, it, it, so it would be your uh, adjusted gross. Okay, yeah. Um, and 
So, you know, they wouldn't even pay the extra tax on the first two million, right? Uh, but unfortunately, there are people that are so greedy that they actually funded a major opposition campaign. And almost all that funding came from those who make that kind of money and didn't want to pay that small increment of taxes. But what really cost us the initiative was the opposition of Governor Newsom, which was a complete shock to me. And the opposition campaign was able to basically make him the front person. And I think, you know, it, everyone agrees. If you talk to the, the no side, if you uh, talk to the, the pollsters and the, the independent pundits, they're all saying the difference here was Governor Newsom. And we started out with a healthy lead in the polls, and then that advertising kicked in. And it was, you know, our polling showed it closed for a while, and then at the end really torpedoed. And, and you know, as you know, John, you've seen so many initiatives. If you've got a major opposition campaign, all they need to do is create enough doubt in the voters' minds. And especially when you're talking about a tax, it's very difficult to pass a tax that has significant opposition. Now, California has increased income taxes on the very wealthy twice before in this century. Those did not have major opposition campaigns, uh, which is one reason why we thought we might not this time. But, you know, the last time it was done, Jerry Brown was the guy supporting it, right? That was also Prop 30 back in 2012, yeah, sure. right, which, you know, led to the balancing of the budget. Um and so, you know, I think the ultra-wealthy didn't want to come out against Jerry Brown, but they were happy to be with Gavin Newsom, right? And, and did the polling show that when Newsom, after he made his announcement, you know, he tied it to Lyft, call it a car, corporate carve-out, did, did the polling immediately show that people were, he, he, they'd been persuaded by, by Newsom? It, it did show... Had an effect uh, anyway. I mean. it, it, it absolutely did show that effect. And then late in the campaign, he actually put some of his campaign money into the no campaign. And, you know, we had run pretty much out of resources at that point. So the, the extra infusion of funds on the no side, we saw another dip in the polling. Uh, and often the, the late deciders break towards the no side. And that's definitely what happened in this case, um, uh, what what is you know particularly um, yeah I don't see what adjective I want to use here uh, <laughs> screwed <laughs> yeah I mean what 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 is particularly disappointing to me trying to be diplomatic is some of the billionaires who funded the no campaign claim that they really care about the climate uh, and so we find out you know people just who's, not this time. Yeah, we find out people who, we, you find out what people really care about, right? Is it protecting the health of Californians for now and future generations, or is it protecting their own pocketbooks? But you know, that's something, uh, that's a conundrum that I think the environmental community faces, is that Californians have repeatedly said that, that climate change is a very important issue to them, they want it addressed, but then they have also repeatedly sort of turned things down at the ballot. I know that the minute gas prices go up, suddenly people don't care about climate change. They care about the fact that it's an extra 50 cents or a dollar uh, to fill up their, their car. And that's a challenge that doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. So what? how do you approach that, that this is very much a pocketbook issue, or at least it, it 
appears to be for people. How do you get past that when you have to get uh, the approval of the public to pass these sorts of, of fixes? Well, it's actually fairly rare for the environmental community to, to go to the ballot with a measure like this. And, you know, in, in this case, it, it was an excellent opportunity. Um, so we, we were part of it, you know, very involved in the campaign. And, um, you know, it, it really, when you look at something that could save the lives of thousands of Californians, uh, it, it's tough to turn that down. But we weren't really affecting the pocketbooks of any Californians except for the, you know, 0.1%. Unfortunately, they're the people who have the money to fund a no campaign. So, you know, they, they didn't, they know that actually taxing the rich is popular. They know that cleaning up the air, um, protecting us wildfires is popular. So they didn't really go after that directly. They just, you know, created this, um, false impression that this was going to benefit one company, which, you know, was, was not true if you actually looked at the language in the measure, there was nothing in there to benefit one company or one industry, and no one could ever point to anything that would. They just said it anyway, and when you've got the money behind an advertising campaign to say it anyway, you can create that doubt and confusion that leads to a no vote. How about the, the cost to people? Um, uh, let's suppose the executive order holds uh, through the next administration, and we have this phase out of Fossil fuel powered. This is the executive order to phase out. Yes, to phase gas out cars and gas powered. Phase out gas powered. So let me update you there because an executive order doesn't have force of law, but right. as of August, that's now a regulation. So that's law. So it will hold. Right. Well, an executive order can be rescinded. Exactly. An executive order can be rescinded, but the Air Resources Board adopted oh. a regulation. Right. Now, it does need to get a waiver from the, the federal government, and the U.S. EPA has been really slow about that, but I think, you know, that will happen. Um, so for that to be rescinded would require a, a, an entire new regulatory process to make that from happen. the ARB? It, they, it would, exactly. The ARB, which has um, adopted this regulation, uh -huh. they're the only ones that could repeal it. Or, I mean, actually, the, the legislature could, or you could do a ballot measure. None of these, I think, are foreseeable at all. So we, we do have this, you know, it's it's not just now an intention. This is an enforceable rule that uh, we will have growing percentages of zero emission vehicles have to be sold by the auto manufacturers in California until we reach 100% in 2035. So that's highly significant. And other states have the ability to follow California's lead. They can't set their own standards. They can either follow the weaker national one or follow California's. This is a particular provision of the Federal Clean Air Act. What about the people, um, I'm just thinking the drivers and motorists, the average driver and motorists who cannot afford maybe a $75,000 Tesla or a $50,000 Bolt or whatever. They cost considerably more than other cars. And as we approach 2035, they're going to cost, I would think, they would cost a bit less because more of them will have been made and there'll be more of them out there to choose from. But I think the Bolt's actually quite a... I think last time I looked, they were like 35 or... 40. I saw a Bolt for like 35 or 38, I think it was, with incentives that have been plugged in. Right. Um, I think with the incentives, actually, you can now get a, a new Bolt for under 30000 
Um, but that, but that is an exception. No, the the affordability of the zero emission vehicles is absolutely a, a concern. Uh, but before I address that directly, let's be clear: there's nothing in this rule that would require anyone to buy a new car. And in fact, most people don't buy new cars; they buy used cars, and so they can hold on to the ones that they have, you know, that and that they've bought through 2034, uh, and they can buy a used car, you know, forever. Uh, but obviously, we do want people to be buying electric cars, both battery-powered and possibly hydrogen fuel cell-powered. But let's face it, it's the battery-powered cars that are way dominant in the market. And we do need for those prices to come down. And, and they will, in part because of this rule. The rule requires the manufacturers to sell these cars in California. So the manufacturers are going to have to price them at levels that people can afford them. So as the, the rule strengthens over time, you know, the percentage goes up every year, right, from 2026 to 2035. And I, I just saw that, I think, in the last quarter, like we had the highest number of electric cars ever sold in California. Is that correct? Yeah, a, a, absolutely. Sales have been going way up. Um, and, and so we just need for that trend to continue. And I think as the manufacturers work out some of the supply chain issues as they start making the cars more at scale. Uh, and of course, we have the help now from the federal law, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a lot of incentives for electric vehicles. We will see prices come down. But right now, I, I agree, they're out of reach of the average Californian in terms of buying a new electric car. And, and even, you know, there aren't that many used ones around. I'm just going to ask, is there a used electric car market out there? There is, but it's not nearly as robust oh, as we need it to be. And this is one of the reasons why we argued for CARB to um, strengthen the standards quickly, because the sooner you get more of the new cars into the market, then the sooner you'll have this robust secondary market for used electric cars. So, um, I, I think we are in for a couple of years. Nobody knows exactly how long of these prices that are too high. And, and we've been supporting a lot of measures to make electric mobility more available to Californians of modest means. And that is, for example, there, there are programs in most of California that allow a low-income person to scrap an old gas-guzzling polluting car and get into a clean electric car with uh, a lot of help from the state. Um, well, there was a program a few years ago. I remember this. Oh, I remember uh, a friend of mine took took advantage of it. it was cash for clunkers. Right, man, that money. I mean, that was popular, and that money disappeared. I think in two weeks or something. I don't know how many thousands of cars got transacted there, but it was pretty popular. Yeah, well, you would get more for. I mean, you'd have a car that barely ran or whatever, and you could sell it for more than you would have been able to sell it through yeah. Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or whatever. So. And we have, you know, here in Sacramento and in Los Angeles area, in the San Joaquin Valley, in the Bay Area, there are programs run by the air districts that help people to do that. Um, there are also ways that people can benefit from electric cars without owning them. So um, car sharing with electric vehicles is something that the state is funding. You can hear in Sacramento, L.A., San Joaquin Valley, and we need to expand that. So, I mean, all of this takes money, which is one of the reasons why, you know, we were trying to pass Prop 30, because we need that funding. And I think as we look ahead to this coming year with what looks like a more difficult budget situations, one of our priorities is going to be defending that money 
there were a lot of promises made this past year in the budget that there would be $10 billion of funding for zero emission vehicles. Most of that money hasn't been allocated yet. And the governor said, oh, we don't need Prop 30 because we've got all this money. Well, then he, he needs to fund those promises. Well, talking about the, the structural part of getting people to adopt these vehicles, one of the things that I am kind of surprised by is that there is a variety of charging stations and, and charging applications for different manufacturers. And I know that there are things you can get at home to, to overcome that. But when you're traveling on five and you get down to the charging station and you have to have multiple kinds of chargers rather than just one kind of charger, are you aware of any regulation that's going to standardize that going forward? Because that seems like something we're going to have to deal with before this becomes – I mean, can you imagine if every single manufacturer had a different way to put gas in the car? No, this would make driving gasoline-powered cars really a pain in the ass. So I'm wondering if there's any regulation out there to standardize the charging uh, when you find them out in the world. You know, not the, not the ones at home, but the ones on the sides of the freeways and you know, etc. Well, there were three systems. We're really just down to two now. There's Tesla and there's everybody else. Um, but the majority of the electric cars that that have been sold have been Teslas. So, you know, that, that's a very relevant divide. You can get, if you have a Tesla, you can purchase an adapter that allows you to plug in to the other charging systems. But it's, um, you know, I, I think it's about $400. And you can't go the other way? Uh, and, and you cannot go the other way because Tesla's charging network is proprietary. They actually own the charging stations and operate them for the benefit of their customers. Now, there is movement towards changing that because – so Tesla does all this without public money, right? Because if, if you take yeah. the state or federal government's money, then your charging station has to be available to everybody. But I thought they got like a half a billion dollars from the city of California. So – but not for the charging ah. infrastructure. But it was like seed money, I think, to start up. But yeah. you're right. No, actually so, – so that was credits as part of the zero emission standard. Um, but but I'm glad you made that point because there are people who think, and I think that uh, Tesla tries to propagate this idea, that they succeeded based on brilliant entrepreneurship. Uh, and in fact, they, they had enormous help from both the state and federal governments, yeah. which is a good thing um, in that, you know, the, the government's invested in this technology that's doing a lot of good for the world. And by the way, they're the biggest manufacturing employer in the state of California. Uh, so it's been oh, really? good from a, oh yes, they, they are, from a jobs perspective. But, um, you know, they haven't always been uh, as public-minded as they should. And so if, if they take public money for charging stations, which I think they would like to do, then they will have to be available to everybody. And that's something that, you know, we'd all like to see. It's like the old fight over Betamax and VHS. You remember that? Oh, you yeah. get these cassettes and finally... One. And we chose the less good one. You know, <laughs> actually, not. It was Sony and everybody else. You know, popular um, idea. Uh, but the the uh, idea of getting public money and, and requiring um, uh, standardization of the charging is that something the ARB gets involved in, or is this something separate from the ARB's regulation or what what they're doing on their side? So typically, the division is that the the Air Resources Board regulates the vehicles. And the Energy Commission is in charge of the infrastructure. Oh, okay. And in fact, the Energy Commission just this week approved a plan that uh, you know, I was involved uh, as an advisor on to fund 
the zero emission infrastructure, the charging stations for battery electric vehicles, uh, hydrogen fueling for hydrogen fueled vehicles. Is this related to the PUC decision? Was this? It, it, it's related. So what the PUC does is they regulate the investor-owned utilities. So yeah. they have approved for the investor-owned utilities investing in charging infrastructure. Separate but related to that, the Energy Commission has public money from the budget that they're investing in public charging and, and fueling. Um, however, you know, there is some overlap. So the ARB does actually have a regulation that they, they were tasked with the legislature to do that sets payment standards for charging stations. And, you know, Tim, you made the really good point that, you know, could you imagine if there were different types of gas fueling for gas cars? Well, without this regulation, you could have um, different payment systems required for all charging stations. So, like, you would need a different credit card for oh, wow. each company that owns different charging stations. So, the, the ARB has a regulation that we supported that prevents that, that requires common forms of payments to be accepted by all the charging stations. So, that's, you know, for the convenience of the user. So as we look ahead to uh, 2023, uh, as far as a clean air advocate goes, is the, um, the the big fight is going to be over keeping the money that has been promised earlier in a time of deteriorate maybe a deteriorating economy. You're just going to have a money fight this year, not a ballot. Fight. We're not going to the ballot again with anything. That's right. That that's right. So the the money issue, you know, moves to the budget, and we're trying in a difficult budgetary situation to defend what was promised to us. Um, on the regulatory front, you know, there are some major measures pending at the Air Resources Board. Uh, I'll mention a couple that are very important. The Advanced Clean Fleets rule will require trucking fleets of 50 trucks or more to buy an escalating percentage of zero emission trucks. So we already have a rule telling the manufacturers, just like on the car side, we're telling the truck manufacturers, you have to sell certain percentages of zero emission trucks in California. Now we're also looking to the demand. So the, the fleets will have to buy those trucks. And so this is really important from a clean air perspective, because as I mentioned earlier, it's toxic diesel exhaust that is plaguing a lot of our communities. So a lot of people don't realize Biggest source of air pollution in California comes from the movement of goods, from the freight system. Really? Absolutely. And so whether they're being moved by truck, by train, the ships that bring them into our ports from overseas, the equipment that unloads them at the ports, those are almost all engines that are running on diesel. And uh, diesel exhaust is a toxic air contaminant and the, the biggest single source of our air pollution in California, both smog and soot. So a lot of our effort is directed at replacing those dirty diesel engines with something cleaner. And on the, the truck side, this advanced clean fleets rule is a key part of that. On the locomotive side, people don't realize how dirty the freight locomotives are. And the measure that will require them to clean up is by far the biggest pollution reducer that the Air Resources Board has in its plans. 
And so they've already had one hearing. Both of these rules should be coming up in the spring, April or May. Very significant. And they're also going to start a process, we think, of cleaning up some of the ocean-going vessels that, you know, the, the huge container ships and oil tankers that are coming and docking at our, our major ports at Los Angeles and Long Beach and Oakland, San Diego, and uh, emitting lots of fumes that are making people sick, particularly in those nearby port communities. Well, it's, hard to, it's hard to envision a, a semi, you know, big semi-tractor trailer rig that's electrical power. Electric, it runs on electricity, but it seems like either it's got to have a huge battery. We're talking about a big engine, you know, or something else is going on. I mean, what kind of range do they have? Do you have any idea? So there's been a lot of progress in electric trucks, um, and you can sometimes see a, a delivery truck, like a box truck, right out here in downtown Sacramento that's fully electric. But you're absolutely right. As the trucks get bigger, the challenge gets a lot larger. And there are some who think that we can solve that with batteries. Um, others think that that's where our hydrogen fuel cell technology is going to be especially important because they won't need to carry the huge batteries if you can have the hydrogen fueling stations along the route, and the Energy Commission is funding those, um, then you could run long-haul trucks that way. But the, the rule does have, um, for the long-haul trucks, the, the dates are the furthest off in the future because those are the hardest to electrify. But there have been some demonstration projects with range um, I know they're up to, with Volvo, for example, a range of uh, at least 150 miles. Oh, wow. So if you're Sorry. talking about taking goods from a port to an inland warehouse, you know, that will be sufficient. Uh, for the long-haul interstate trucking, you're still going to need more than that. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I was a truck driver at one point in my life. Really? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you needed to go a lot further than 150 miles. Yeah. So, um, no, absolutely. You know, and, and this is sort of far afield of what we're talking about now, but uh, going forward. So do you have any comment about the news this week that uh, they actually have successfully produced energy through cold fusion? This is, uh, you know, could be a real game changer going forward with, with clean air energy production. And no one is saying this is coming in the next two years, five years, whatever. But uh, long term, this could be a really, really dramatic development. you have any comments on that? Well, it is a breakthrough development. You know, the, the joke has been for a long time that nuclear fusion is a technology that will always be 50, 50 <laughs> years away. So when I started my career as an environmental advocate in Washington, D.C., and I was working on clean energy, and there was a so-called uh, cold fusion breakthrough. And I went to a hearing held by the House Science Committee, and this is probably about 1989, 1990. And that room was packed, and people were so thrilled to hear about that cold fusion turned out to be essentially a hoax. It, it actually I remember that. did not work, right? Now, so, so this you know, recent breakthrough here in California has a lot more solidity to it than that. So we finally reached the point where they're able to generate a little bit more energy than they use. Um, I think they actually generated 50% again more than they used, at least in the lasers. That's what I read. But it's still... The time it will take to get that on a commercial scale yeah. uh, is longer than we really have to solve this climate crisis. So, um, you know, the work should continue on fusion. Absolutely. We want to get to that point 
sooner rather than later. But we can't see it as something that's going to solve all our energy problems and take the pressure off because we need to keep accelerating the more proven technologies that we already have and deploy those, which, which is a big challenge. I mean, you know, California needs to get a lot more renewable electricity in the ground, on the rooftops, and, and do it quickly. So you're saying we're not going to be seeing this in my lifetime, which I feel like I've been screwed. I was, I was promised. You wanted a jetpack too, right? I, well, the the jet, I, didn't, I didn't care about the jetpack. What I wanted is I wanted a cloned woolly mammoth. I was promised a cloned woolly mammoth. I have not seen it. I want my cold fusion. I, you know, I'm 56 now. Maybe if I live to be 90, I'll see both. <laughs> um, one last question, uh, Bill. Uh, the uh, Prop 30 uh, went down at least largely because of the governor's action. How is uh, how's the relationship now between the clean air folks and the governor as we go into 2023? Is he going to be, do you think, can you estimate, is he going to be in your camp in terms of protecting the money you need? I mean, that's really the, the question that we're asking, and we don't know yet. You know, uh, we have, have put a letter in to the governor and the legislative leaders. We're eagerly awaiting the budget announcement uh, in January. My hunch is that a lot won't be really known until the May revision. Because, you know, we've seen budget forecasts be wrong in the past. So the Legislative Analyst Office is projecting a $25 billion shortfall. Um, it could be more than that. My hope $25 billion is a lot of money. My hope is that it'll be less than that. Yeah. You know, I remember in early 2020, we were hearing the direst predictions, yeah. right? And we ended up with a huge surplus. Yeah. Don't know if that'll happen again. I'm, I'm not a budget forecaster, but... My point is really that we won't know how much money is available probably until April, and then that will lead to the May revision. Um, we need the governor to really fund the promises that he's put out there. Obviously, the state has a lot of priorities uh, that, that need to be funded. There's no question about that. But we do have this existential crisis now. I, I like to call them the twin crises of climate change and air pollution. And the good thing is we have some solutions, right? We have zero emission transportation. We have renewable electricity. Uh, and we need to get there by strong rules and financial incentives. Bill McGavern, thank you so much. Tim Foster, thank you very Thanks, much. Tom. And now we're going to get into what we think is a great feature, who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Which you're welcome to join us for. Although we have, no, I have no we idea. We haven't even talked about it. We haven't even thought about it. Kevin so. McCarthy. Oh, uh, maybe. Hey, okay. He's a California. Kind of a tenuous link there, but he's a oh, California. No, he's a California. I mean, uh, boy, he would uh, be pretty cranky. I mean, last week was really easy with uh, with Mister Boxing Brawler uh, Kevin DeLeon. Yeah, he had uh, a very easy worst week. Uh, you're welcome <clears> to join <throat> in the discussion or not. Most people don't want. to. So, but yeah, I mean, Kevin McCarthy is a pretty good argument. Uh, I can't really think of anyone else off the top of my head. Although, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't lost it yet. Agreed. Um, I think the thing about Kevin McCarthy is he thought it was an easy go. Like the rest of us, we thought there'd be a red wave. Uh, maybe the Reaps are going to pick up 25 or 30 seats. They did not. They picked up a handful. I think it's somewhere around, what is it, 221 to 213, something like that. It's in that area. It's pretty close. Uh, it's pretty close. Now, John has a conspiracy theory that they're going to work out and they're going to elect Willie Brown, the speaker. <laughs> yeah, actually, 
And that actually, I was kind of joking about, but it actually was floated last week uh, that the Democrats are approaching, go, going up to moderate Republicans, seeing if they join in the ball game. Some of them apparently were thinking about it. Yeah, they the called that the Unity Caucus. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we had a, a podcast, Tim and I did uh, a few months ago with uh, Bruce Young, who has since passed away. Um, but he had some amazing figures about the uh, Willie Brown's accession to the speakership. And we all knew that Willie Brown had more Republican votes but Democratic than Democratic votes. He had 32 Republican votes wow. and nine Democratic votes in an 80-member House. And he pro- to get those votes, he promised them uh, great things for one year. And after that, <laughs> that was the end of that. You know? What's crazy is that's almost twice as many Republican votes as there are Republicans in the Assembly now. Yeah, now. <laughs> so, so. Uh, but yeah, but Kevin McCarthy, you know, and I do think it was funny that they're circulating buttons saying only Kevin, like, and it's okay. And I was like, it's not so great when your supporters are like, hey, he's okay. Yeah. Like, Colbert actually did a great spoof of that. Uh, on his show last night, where he had he had some other acronyms that that added up to like lame. Um, so. <laughs> like it's funny. There's a so the Crosley Automobile Company, which went out of business in 1952. Uh, their their slogan was a fine car, and it's like the joke was because they were very budget. They were sort of like the Volkswagen of their day. They were like it's fine. Just leave me alone. It's fine. It's kind of the speakership fight here. It's like he's fine. He's okay. Right. So. Colbert had another one that spelled out meh. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's, well, it could be, he's, could be meh-ga. So, so we really don't know what's going to happen. The likelihood is a prediction is that at some point, even the, um, uh, unhappy Republicans right now, I think Biggs is one and Matt Gates and the, the sort of the usual suspects, even at some point in the future, they'll want a Republican rather than a, someone else, a Democrat, say, as a speaker or even a moderate. Well, okay. Now we beat up Kevin McCarthy. Even got a little bit on De Leon. Tim, I think we've uh, we've done our job today. What do you think? Yeah, I guess uh, I guess so. Or Bill McGavitt, thank you. Yeah, Bill, my thank pleasure. You so much. No, yeah. great talking with you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>